0: Good morning to each of you. I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me once again to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 1. And as you are turning there, as you are finding that portion of God's Word, let me begin with a, with a profound question, simply this, is God the author of of evil? Is God the author, the origin, the source of evil? To answer that question properly, faithfully, uh, we need to begin by acknowledging that there are three kinds of evil, Uh, three Sorts, groupings of evil. Uh, There is what we might call natural evil. Natural, what I mean by that is a natural consequence of the fall. And so I'm thinking of things such as sickness, disease, death, Are these things evil? Yes, they're evil. They're one kind of evil. They are, again, what we can call, what we can designate as natural evil. So far, so good. There's a second sort of evil, and we might call it material evil. Um, Wild animals. And so one of our brave men of Herculean strength, Just a few weeks ago, manhandled a rattlesnake out there at the dumpster. That is now a no-go zone for me. I don't know about you. (laughs) But um, there you have it. Wild animal. A material evil. You can add to that list poisonous plants, deadly storms. You get the idea, right? That's a second classification. Third classification is this, moral evil. And what do we have in mind when we speak of moral evil? Simply transgressions against God's commandments. So what's my question? Is God the author of evil? Depends on which kind of evil you're talking about. I submit to you that God is indeed the author of the first two categories. He is the author, the origin, the source of natural evil and of material evil. You might think to yourself, hang on a second. No, all those things you mentioned, terrible storms, disease, death, poisonous critters, all these things are a consequence of the fall. You're right. The fall is the meritorious cause of all those things. But who cursed creation? Who cursed humanity? as a result of the fall. It was God himself. So when I ask the question, is God the author of evil, and I say no, I want us to be perfectly clear that I'm not referring to natural evil or material evil. I am referring exclusively to what? Moral evil, transgressions of God's commandments. He is not the origin of this, He is not the source of this. He is not the author of this. Please understand, he decrees it. That might not sit well with one or two of us, but there you have it. He decrees evil. Uh, You can think no further than of what Luke writes in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, This Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so who killed the Lord Jesus? Lawless men. It was a transgression of God's revealed will. Therefore, it was from man's vantage point, a moral evil. And yet it happened according to the definite plan of God Himself. And so we affirm that He actually what? Decreed it. But we make an important division. Divisions are essential when it comes to theology. We differentiate between privative decrees and positive decrees. A positive decree of God is what? That which He actually performs in time. A privative decree of God is what? That which he willingly permits. So he decreed creation and he created, he performed it of his own initiative by his own power and he declared it to be very good. He decreed the fall, but he did not cause it. He willingly permitted Adam and Eve to rebel. And so is God the author of evil? Is He the origin of evil? Is He the source of evil? Moral evil? Transgressions of His revealed will? We answer, definitely not. Yes, He has decreed it. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. But He does not perform it in time. And this is precisely what James is celebrating in chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived when it comes to the origin of temptation. Do not be deceived when it comes to the origin of evil, the origin of sin, my beloved brothers. It does not come from God. How do we know this? Verse 17. Because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change i listen to one of my favorite authors, one of my best friends, long gone, dead and buried centuries ago. All good is in God virtually and eminently. The many excellencies scattered among the creatures of heaven and earth are united in an infinite manner in the Creator. Since God is the cause of Of all the good in his creatures, then all this good must exist even more abundantly in him. In other words, that is to say, if there is good in the effect, then there must be a great deal of good in the cause. And so every experience, tangible experience of good in this life forces us back to the first cause, God himself. And we affirm, therefore, that he is essentially good. His being is good. We affirm that he is immutably good. He is the father of lights, the creator, sun, moon, and stars. They move around all in their orbit and they cause shadows. God is not like that. He is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And we affirm that he is beneficially good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, do you want an example of what kind of gifts James has in mind? What's he really thinking about here? He says every, and so it's quite a large category, isn't it? He's obviously got a lot of things in view and we can put a lot of things in there. But he is going to focus our attention in one very specific direction. Verse 18, here you go. One example, one great example of the goodness of God, this good gift, this perfect gift that comes down, that descends from the Father of lights. 18th verse, of his own will. That is of God's own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So there you have the good gift. There you have the perfect gift that James has primarily in mind. It is God bringing us forth by the word of truth. It is, putting it in slightly different terms, it is God giving birth to us. Or putting it in slightly different terms, it is God's wondrous work of regeneration. It's the new birth. It is a good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. First order of business. What are we talking about when we refer to regeneration? Um, what do we have in mind? What does James have in mind when he uses this phrase? It's creation language, isn't it? Of his own will, just like creation, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, of his own will, he spoke all of creation into existence. He brings it out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Similarly, when it comes to our spiritual birth, it's an act of his own will bringing us forth, causing us to be born again. What exactly is that? As I labored over this this past week, uh, I thought the best way to describe this, to explain this gift of regeneration, was perhaps to give you several illustrations of it. And I've adapted these from the pen of Jeremy Walker, and I trust you'll find these profitable. We're just wrestling for a moment with this bringing forth, being born again, God's work of regeneration. So listen to these four illustrations. There is a self-absorbed teenage girl whose disposition transmits an unmistakable message. I do whatever I want. Her parents live in constant fear of her angry outbursts. Her siblings are the helpless victims of her verbal barrages. She is ill-mannered and she is ill-tempered. Then one day, She's sitting under the preaching of the gospel with her shoulders back, her face open, her body relaxed, her eyes eager, her mouth smiling as she engages with the truth. What has happened? God has brought her forth. She has been born again. Here's another illustration. There's a self-absorbed teenage boy whose family members live in constant fear of his emotional outbursts and verbal bombardments. He's a chip on his shoulders the size of Mount Everest. He's the epitome of arrogance, yet he's absolutely blind to it. Then one day, he begins to pay attention to what he hears at church. What was formerly bitter becomes sweet. He assumes responsibility for his actions, he demonstrates an interest in issues of eternal consequence. What has happened? God has brought him forth. Here's a third illustration. There is a self-obsessed man who so desperately wants to be somebody. He seeks to convey a certain image to those around him. His soul is full of bitterness because he is convinced he is the only one who recognizes his true worth. Then one day he is humbled under God's word. He slowly but surely becomes poor in spirit. He begins to dismantle all the vain trophies in his life because he no longer defines himself by these silly things. He stops pretending to be what he is not. What has happened? You're with me, right? God has brought him forth. There is a self-absorbed woman, illustration number four, locked in the mere form of godliness. She is very quick to let people know when they haven't reached her required standard. Listening to her is like drinking vinegar. Then one day, she begins to feel her heart sins. She weeps over them. She is enraptured with the glory of God. She is found speaking with others about the beauty of Christ. She is filled with thankfulness. Her prayers become the stutters of a broken heart. What has happened? A miracle has happened. God has brought her forth. He has caused her to be born again. He has performed his miracle of regeneration. You're getting the idea. Let me sum it up for you in just a few statements. Regeneration, being brought forth, means seeing something you did not see before. That's good. It means seeing something you did not see before. It means loving something you did not love before. And it means doing something. You did not do before. This radical change occurs because you have come to life. You've been born. God has brought you forth. And he causes you to love what you naturally hate and to hate what you naturally love. It is the gift of life. It is being born again. It is being begotten of the Spirit of God. It is being brought forth by the word of truth. That's what James is pointing us to here in the 18th verse as the epitome, if you like, the climax when we think of every good and perfect gift that descends from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow, here is one of the greatest gifts I can think of, possibly think of, ponder, meditate upon. It is the gift of the new birth. We're going to unpack it in verse 18. There's actually quite a lot there. As you've discovered, I hope you discover discovered by now, James is a consummate theologian. I get very impatient when I hear it from some, well, Paul's a real theologian and James just kind of, I don't know, hes a few ideas here. No, James is a theologian par excellence and his verses are packed with truths. Astronomers tell us, I was thinking of this the other night as I was staring at the night sky. Astronomers tell us that when we look up and we peer into the heavens and we see all of these stars In actual fact, when it comes to many of these stars, I don't know which ones, I'm absolutely clueless, but apparently many of these stars aren't actually single stars. They are clusters. Meaning what? We're only seeing one light. But if we could get closer, we would discover that they are actually a cluster of hundreds if not thousands of stars. But from our vantage point, oh, it's just one star, there's a star, there's a star. Well, this one might actually be just one single light, but the other might actually be thousands of different lights, different stars, just so closely grouped from our vantage point that all we're seeing is the one. James' verses are just like that. If we don't give them enough tension attention, we can sort of skim over them. Okay, there's a star. That's kind of nice. And we don't realize, no, what we've actually got are clusters of stars as he packs so much into his statements and these verses. The 18th verse being a case in point of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I want you to notice Three marks, three aspects of what it means to be brought forth or what it means to be regenerated. Here's the first. I want you to notice the cause of regeneration. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? First thing he says in that verse, of his, the pronoun refers back to the one whom he was describing in verse 17, the father of lights. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Uh, it is, in a nutshell, simply put, the new birth is God's initiative. The reason for the new birth, the cause of the new birth, resides in the will. Of God. It must be that way. Why? Simply because the Bible makes it painfully clear by nature from the moment of conception, what are we? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And just as we played no role in our physical birth, we play no role in our spiritual birth. Just pause and think about that for a moment. Here you are. You were born. What role did you play in it? What did you contribute to it? What did you bring to it? Absolutely nothing. You were simply born physically. So too, when it comes to our spiritual birth, we contribute nothing to it. We do not factor into it. It is not something we cause. It's not something that we participate in. It is an act of God's will. Keith Matheson describes it as follows He writes, My children were born physically healthy, and for that I thank God. But he adds, They, like every descendant of Adam, were spiritually stillborn. They were born spiritually dead, and they are not alone. You and I and every other person were born dead in sin. In our natural state, please listen closely to what he says here. In our natural state, our natural condition, we are not on our sick beds. We are in the grave. According to many, we're not spiritually dead, but simply sick. We're on our deathbeds, and Jesus offers us the cure. All we have to do is reach out and take it. Or for many, we are drowning, and Jesus offers us a life vest, and all we have to do is grab it. But the picture painted by Jesus and the apostles is much bleaker. In our natural state, we are not on our sickbeds. We are in the grave. We are not flailing about on the surface of the sea. We are lifeless at the bottom of the ocean. We are dead. Therefore, our only hope is what? That God of His own will might bring us forth. The great demonstration of this reality in Scripture is Lazarus. And you think of that recorded there by John, John chapter 11. And you think as the word comes to the Lord Jesus that his friend Lazarus has died, he has passed away. Christ delays a few days and then finally he makes the journey to where they have buried Lazarus. He's been in the grave I think about four days now. And the Lord Jesus approaches the grave And he utters those words. Please pay close attention to those words, especially in the context of what we read here in our verse, verse 18. What are the words he utters? Lazarus, come forth. It was a work of creative power. It was the work of the creator himself, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are created. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, speaking forth his word, a miracle. And Lazarus, what did he do? He responded. Here's what we must get. Our our, our condition, my friend, you must understand this. It is the starting point. We're not like drowning men in the water crying out for help. No, as Keith Matheson made that point so clear, we're already dead face down at the bottom of the ocean. And but Christ, here's the miracle, and here's the wonder of wonders. Christ comes near to the grave. That grave in which we are spiritually dead. And Christ himself, his own initiative, speaks these words. He sends forth his command, come forth. And there is a miracle. Oh, I hope you believe in miracles, my friend. I believe in miracles. Conversion is a miracle. The fact that any of us, have ever believed in the Lord Jesus and repented of our sin is a testimony to miracles and God's saving power and creative power. And so as Lazarus was dead, I was dead in my sin. As Christ loved Lazarus, Christ loved me even though a sinner. As Christ called Lazarus, Christ called me through the preaching of his word and the ministry of his spirit. As Christ called, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. I came forth. And ever since then, I have been singing. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God's initiative from beginning to end. Please understand, most of us are already convinced of this. We did not believe so that we might be born again. We were born again that we might believe. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But of his own will, he brought us forth. There's the cause of regeneration. I want you to notice, secondly, the instrument Of regeneration. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Notice the next word, by, it points to instrumentality, the means. How did God do this? How did he accomplish it? By the word of truth. What's the word of truth? It's the Bible, it's the scriptures, it's the word of God. That when God spoke to us, he did so through his word. And he gave us eyes to see. He illuminated our minds. And he inclined our hearts to what we heard. Whereby we became convinced that indeed this book is the word of truth. And by hearing, he cultivated faith in us. Whereby we responded. This is the meaning. We need to be very clear on this in our day. I think it's one of the chief battlegrounds facing evangelicalism. We need to be clear on this. This book is God's voice. Do you get that? Far too many of us, and I might step on a toe or two here, but I'm doing so pastorally out of concern. Far too many of us are still trying to hear God's voice within us. Far too many of us think our gusts of emotion and our inner urgings and promptings are the voice of God, whereby He reveals His will to us. God has never spoken to me outside of this book. I have never heard the voice of God outside of this book, and I'm not trying to hear His voice anywhere else. I am not going to make my relationship with God contingent upon my nebulous feelings that are up and down like a yo-yo. Neither am I going to divorce, separate, make an unwarranted cleavage between the Spirit of God and the Word of God, which is the only infallible and sufficient revelation that He has given to us. Please, my friend, if you're not already convinced of this, try to hear God speaking to you. Do that by picking up this book, reading this book, memorizing this book, studying this book. I promise you, I declare it right now. The Bible is the voice of God. There will be no other revelations. And your little emotions and everything going on inside of you that you like to think is God, I would suggest to you is simply you mirroring your own will upon yourself, whereby you almost fall into some sort of, I don't know, schizophrenic paradigm. And your relationship on God completely dependent upon, how am I feeling today? How am I feeling tomorrow? How am I supposed to interpret my feelings now? What is God saying to my, through my feelings now? We'll affirm it in the clearest terms possible. He's not saying anything. Pick up your Bible. Read the Bible. Seek God's voice in his word. Oh, Isaiah declares it so powerfully. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, the Bible is God's voice. That which goes out, says Isaiah, from his mouth. It bridges the expanse between heaven and earth, infinite and finite, creator and creature. It is, says Isaiah, the word of God, the Bible, scripture. It is as powerful, as the rain and the snow that come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. It is the only means by which God speaks to us. And when he speaks to us through his word, he illuminates our darkened mind. He inclines our hardened heart, enabling us to see that this book is indeed the word of truth. What it says about God is true. What it says about me is painfully true. What it says about heaven and hell is true. What it says about the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, from the cradle to the cross, and now at his father's right hand on high, it is all true. What it says about God's will for me is true. And what it says about the good news of salvation, the gospel, that there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of the Lord Jesus, it is true. And it's when the Spirit of God gives us these eyes to see. The blindness is removed. We're no longer like blind Bartimaeus, groping around in the dark. But we now see things for what they really are. And we now hear God's voice in the Scriptures. What do we know has happened? We know that of His own will, He has brought us forth. And He has done so by the word of truth. There is the instrument, the means of regeneration. Third point is this, the purpose of regeneration. Look through it, work through it. Verse 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. That, it's a purpose clause, grammatically. That, so that, in order that. We should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are part of a new creation. Having been born again and having been made one by the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are part of this new creation inaugurated right now consummated when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and having caused us to be born again, having made us new creatures, we're like first fruits, meaning what? We're set apart to God. He has made us his peculiar possession. He has taken ownership of us. He has put his hand, so to speak, over us and he has declared mine, my people. Adopted into the family of God. And because of this, he is now renewing us in his, in his image. And he is renewing us in his image that as we who are the first fruits of his creatures might glorify him as he has designed us to do. You think, my mind just went to it. You think of that little book you're reading now on Wednesday night? You go back to the preface. I think it's in the preface. It's somewhere in there. I don't even remember where it is. Somewhere in there. There's a story, it's back near the beginning, I know that much. There's a story a few years ago, it takes place in Spain, of an elderly woman who enters a little rural church village somewhere in Spain, Borgia, I think was the town. And she enters into a village church and she notices on the wall a little fresco, a painting, "Eco Homo, right? This is the man, Christ on trial before Pilate. And in her opinion, her estimation estimation is looking a little faded. It's looking a little ragged. That's too bad. She goes home and she gets her little paint set from her paint by numbers or whatever. She comes back to the church and she thinks she's going to correct the thing. Completely ruins it. I think it was a one newspaper reporter who went out to actually take a look at it. Said what we were left with was something resembling a bloated hedgehog. She had completely destroyed the painting. Uh, That's us, folks. We were created In the image of God. We were created to reflect, mirror, visibly, the invisible attributes of God. Holiness and righteousness primarily. As a consequence of Adam's fall, what happened? The image was marred. The mind was darkened. The heart was hardened. The will was enslaved. Knowledge was replaced with ignorance. Righteousness was replaced with unrighteousness. Holiness was replaced with unholiness. But he causes us to be born again. He brings us forth this new creation. He does it on the basis of Christ's atoning work. He accomplishes it through the word of truth. We are now new creatures. Paul tells us in Colossians 3. He tells us in Ephesians 4. That image is now being renewed in us. The image consisting of what? Knowledge. Usurping ignorance. Righteousness taking the place of unrighteousness. Holiness taking the place of unholiness. And all of this is that what me might be for the eternal glory of God. Oh, this is the purpose of regeneration. It is for this good God, this great God. Look again at the 17th verse. The father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It is by revealing His power and His wisdom and His grace in taking a people for Himself, bringing them forth of His own will, causing them to be born again through the Scriptures, that now they might constitute a new creation, a new creation that will exist for His eternal glory. Two verses as we conclude to make sure we're really getting this. Two verses. The first one I want to direct to the unbeliever. Here it is. Given all that we've considered here in James, here's my verse for any unbelievers gathered here. It's out of John chapter 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There you have it. That is God's word. That is God's voice. Don't listen to what's going on inside you. God speaks to us just like other people speak to us from outside ourselves. That is God's voice to you right now unless you are born again. You cannot. It is an absolute impossibility. You cannot. You will never enter the kingdom of God. Let me build on it a little. Being zealous is not enough not enough, being active, being busy. You might be engaged in feeding the poor. That's wonderful. You might be engaged in addressing some sort of uh, social inequality. Uh, You might be involved in educating the uneducated. You might be involved in serving in terms of ministering to to the down and out and the destitute. I have no problem with that. I applaud that. It, it, it's good. It's great for society. It's for the betterment of the society and the country in which we live. But please understand this. It does not change your spiritual condition in the sight of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, is it, is it you know, being nice good enough? But being nice is not good enough. I mean, there are people, aren't there? But Butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. And relatively speaking, as far as human beings go, we would designate them as nice. But all it makes you is a nice sinner. All it makes you is a nice rebel. All it means is you're kind of nice as you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Just as being zealous isn't enough, being nice isn't enough, being religious isn't enough. There you are in your chair every Sunday. There you are engaged and committed to the church. There you are involved in any number of religious activities. Do not think for one moment that any of that changes your most fundamental basic status in the sight of a God, which is someone who is dead in the grave. Dead in your trespasses and sins. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me add one more. Being moral isn't good enough. Maybe you have never played with the swine in the muck and the mire. And again, comparatively speaking, your life has been pretty good. You, are, you have been sorely misled. If you think in some way, size, shape, form, that endears you to God. All our righteous deeds are but filthy rags in the sight of God. I think I said it a few Sundays ago. I know it's somewhat grotesque, but I will say it again. Speaking of the beauty of a corpse, right? How silly is that? speaking of the moral good of a human being who has not been born again by the Spirit of God is equally silly. Speaking of man's, the individual who is dead in his trespasses and sins, speaking of his morality is as silly as speaking of the beauty of a corpse. Being good Isn't enough. Being zealous isn't enough. Being nice isn't enough. Being religious most certainly is not enough. Here is the voice of God. Unless one is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. And a verse for believers. John 1, 12. We were born. Not of blood. Nor of the will of flesh. Nor of the will of man but of God, born, spiritually born, brought forth, regenerated. It was not of blood. It wasn't a result of the will of the flesh, human effort. It wasn't a result of the will of man. It was of God. Oh, Christian, please understand how the 18th verse is a tremendous example of God's goodness and in particular of every good gift and every perfect gift that descends from above, that God himself, this good God, would look graciously and mercifully upon those who hate him by nature and on his own initiative. We enter into the mystery of his will that he would bring us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Oh, consider God's good and perfect gift. Christian, you were born dead in sin. Christ came to your grave. He commanded you to come forth. He gave you spiritual life. And you are now an adopted child. Of God. Oh, the hymn writer says it so well. Not all the outward forms on earth, nor rights that God has given, nor will of man, nor blood, nor birth can raise a soul to heaven. The sovereign will of God alone creates us heirs of grace, born in the image of his Son, a new peculiar grace. The Spirit. Like some heavenly wind, breathes on the sons of flesh, creates anew the carnal mind, and forms the man afresh. Our quickened souls awake and rise from their long sleep of death. On heavenly things we fix our eyes, and praise employs our breath. Our Father, we do praise you this day as we consider this great gift of the new birth. We remember all those centuries ago, your son having risen from the dead, how he walked with those disciples on the road to Emmaus and having explained to them everything concerning himself in the scriptures, he then gave them eyes to see. He gave them eyes to perceive. He gave them understanding that the word might indeed become the word of truth deeply implanted with them. That is our prayer for any unbelievers gathered here in your presence this day. That you might be pleased, well pleased to perform a miracle of grace, giving eyes to see, again ears to hear, hearts to receive. And we ask it for the furtherance of your glorious kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.